a real pleasure to welcome back our next guest. He has uh, been with us in the past. He's written a new piece for the at theconversation.com entitled Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force Needs Better Transparency About Potential Conflicts of Interest. I've entitled this particular segment of the show Vaccine Credibility. And our guest is Dr. Joel Lection, who is a professor emeritus of health policy and management at York University. He's an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto, and he's also an associate professor of family and community medicine at the U of T. Dr. Lection, welcome back, sir. It's great to have you with us again. Thanks, Sterling. It's a pleasure to be here again. It's good to have you with us. Now, before we cut to the chase and talk about the Canadian version of the product, Dr. Lection, could you step back and take a look at the big picture and bring us up to date this weekend as to where we are in the global search for vaccine? For example, sir, we've heard for about a couple of experimental trial runs being paused, one in the UK, and there was some pausing done by Pfizer this week as well. Can, can you bring us up to date on the status of, of the progress so far? Well, I don't know um, what's going on with the Pfizer vaccine, except that there, was, there were reports about people suffering side effects. Yes. Um, possibly from the vaccine. But we have to remember that um, these trials are enrolling somewhere in the range of 30,000 people. So whether or not what happens to a few people are, is due to the vaccine or is just chance, um, you know, you eat a, bo- a bottle, a bowl of cereal in the morning if 30,000 people eat it and somebody's going to go outside and fall down on the ice and or get hit by a bicycle or something like that. Is that because they ate the bowl of right, cereal right. or is that um, just a fluke? Um, so that's what these pauses are, are meant to do, is for there to be a thorough evaluation of the situa- of what happened to the individuals, and then people make a decision whether or not that might be um, related to the vaccine. It's the whole purpose of the trial in the first place, though, isn't it, Dr. Lection? That's It's why we have a trial. Well, the trial is for two things. First of all, the trial is to find out whether or not the vaccine actually works mm-hmm. and, um, and how well it works. I mean, there are a number of questions going on here that, um, that we, we want to find out. So does it prevent just mild cases of um, COVID or does it actually prevent the really serious ones? Mm-hmm. Does it work in people who are 25 to 55, or does it work in the more vulnerable people, the ones that are over 70 or 80? Um, And the other thing we're trying to do is we're trying to find out how safe the vaccine is. Um, And that's where there is a bit of concern, because um, for statistical reasons, if you want to be sure you've seen one one problem in 10,000 people, you actually have to test the product in 30,000 people. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing. But if there are side effects of a vaccine that occur in fewer than one in 10,000, we're not going to see them until the vaccine is in widespread use. Um, now, those, those unknown side effects may be mild. You get a headache for a day and it goes away. Mm-hmm. Or they might be quite serious. But if they occur in something like one in 15,000 people, 
um, and 20,000 people, or 20 million people in Canada get the vaccine, then there are going to be a, a large number of people who are going to have that side effect. Sure. Um, and that's potentially a concern. Is there a problem, Dr. Election, with the haste uh, involved here? And, and recognizing, of course, that the efforts going on in our own country are being replicated pretty much in labs and, and, uh, and medical communities around the planet. As I, I assume there's a level of international cooperation going on, the likes of which is dazzling, to say the very least. And yet there's tremendous, not only social pressure, but I'm not, and not exclusively in the United States either, but there is tremendous political pressure to hustle that Blinken vaccine into production yesterday. How, how adversely or how, how did the testing teams focus on getting the right product and resist all of that external pressure in the process? That's um, <clears throat> a very important question, Sterling. Um, and it's not at all clear that they, especially in the United States, that they're resisting that, that pressure. Um, you know that Trump is looking for a vaccine before the election well, yes. to, help, to help him. Um, and the question really is, is the, in the U.S., is the Food and Drug Administration going to be um, subject to political pressure to approve, that, to approve a vaccine quickly? Um, hopefully not, but we really don't know about that. Um, the other problem is that, yes, we do want a vaccine very fast. Sure. Um, but that means that we're only going to be looking at people who've got the, the test vaccines for a couple of months to see if something bad happens. So if we, if something, um, if there are side effects that take six months or a year mm -hmm. to show up, we're not going to see those in these clinical trials. We also saw a number of American pharmaceutical manufacturers come together, I guess now a couple of months ago, Dr. Election, and produce some kind of pact. They had uh, agreed amongst themselves uh, to certain terms and conditions, points of reference, if you will, in terms of the production of the eventual vaccine. Some kind of mutual agreement that the quality and the testing process would not be compromised by external pressures. How much credibility should we attach to that self-produced document from the pharmaceutical business? Again, um, an excellent question, um, and hopefully we can believe what they're what they're saying. And um, if we don't believe what they're saying, that will undermine people's confidence sure in getting will. a vaccine. But on the other hand, um, the industry has a history of. Um, Falsify, uh, not falsifying, but not revealing all of the information that it has and putting a positive spin on the test results when that positive spin isn't necessarily justified. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, even though I'm a skeptic about the industry, um, I'm choosing to um, 
take at this point take it as its word. Although um, I'm going to be watching very closely to see what happens. Joined from Toronto by Dr. Joel Lection from the University Health Network. Dr. Lection also teaches family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. We've been talking very generously. You've been very patient with us again, Dr. Lection, uh, sort of walking us through where we're at globally with respect to uh, the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's zoom in, sir, on what you've written most recently about, and that's the Canadian efforts underway. And here in this country, uh, over the summer, the National Research Council set up a a, a task force, the COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. This is the group charged with the responsibility for producing a vaccine in Canada. Tell us a little bit about the composition of this group and your concerns about them. Well, first of all, they're, they're actually not going to be producing the vaccine. What they're doing is they're giving the government advice about which companies to um, sign contracts with for potential vaccines. Okay, sure. Supervising Um, the process. um, Well, advising the process. Okay. Um, So this task force, um, the Liberal government deliberately decided um, that they would include people with serious conflicts of interest um, on this task force. So we have somebody who was, used to be the president of the, of the Canadian branch of Sanofi. That's one of the um, companies that's looking for um, a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's on the task force. So we have the, pres- the ex-president of the co- of a company um, that's produ- that may be producing one of the vaccines is sitting on this task force to give the government um Independent advice. advice, right, okay. We also have a number of people who have had research um, contracts with various companies, again, that are producing um, candidate vaccines. They sit on the task force. Um, And it's also quite interesting who doesn't sit on the task force. So we don't have any representatives of people who um, are in high-risk groups. So frontline healthcare workers are not on the task force. Um, indigenous people are not on the task force. Um, people in lo- from low-income um, communities who are much more at risk of getting the disease are not on the task force. So we've got a task force which deliberate the, the government did not care if people had conflicts of interest. Um, and these are the people who are advising the government. Um, we can only hope that, they're, that the advice that they're going to be giving is advice that doesn't um, come out of their conflicted uh, relationships with the companies. So is that is that your your primary concern? And, and the article that you've written most recently is the Canadian Force Task Force needs better transparency about potential conflicts of interest. So as you've defined what you perceive to be conflicts of interest between individuals on this task force, uh, Doctor Lection, are you concerned that they haven't been forthcoming about their either current or previous corporate connections? Initially, um, this was there was no transparency. Um, we had the names of the people, but we didn't have any information about what relationships they might or 
they might have with pharmaceutical companies. Um, and in fact, when one of the co-chairs of the committee was asked about whether or not there should be more transparency, her answer boiled down to, well, we're doing this on a voluntary basis, so we don't have to um, let people know what our, what our conflicts might be. Um, now, that, there was a lot of negative publicity about that. One of the members of the task force actually resigned from the task force because of the lack of transparency. Mm, okay. So we're now getting um, some more information. So the government has really, the task force, I believe, has had five meetings since it was set up in mid-June, and the government has released um, information about what conflicts people have declared at each of those five meetings. Okay, so now is there a super? I know I know this is a body that's been uh, arbitrarily put together by the government of Canada to oversee the process of coming up with the right vaccine. But if they're the overseers, and I know this sounds uh, almost redundant, Doctor Lection, but who's overseeing the overseers? Is there, for example, a parliamentary officer in charge of all of this who can advise or uh, at least uh, watch the uh, the evolution of these committees? Um, well, the committee, as I said, only gives advice. It gives rec- makes recommendations to the government. Um, and hopefully, Health Canada is looking at more than just what the committee has to say. Sure. But again, that's not something that we've been told about. We don't know what the process is for deciding who, which companies um, the government is signing contracts with. Um, and so, you know, this may come out in the future. So the ombudsman may um, conduct an investigation. Mm -hmm. But right now, the committee makes recommendations. It goes into a black box within Health Canada. And Health Canada makes an announcement, or the federal government makes an announcement that we've signed a contract with company X or company Y. Right. And in the article, you identified the fact that Canada will probably spend hundreds of millions, if not billions, on the vaccine or even vaccines, plural. And you already acknowledge that we have deals with companies like Novax and Johnson & Johnson. And, and you identify also more recent deals conducted with companies like Pfizer, Moderna, GlaxoSmithKline, Sanofi and AstraZeneca. So are these existing deals? Or are these sort of tentative deals that if the company comes up with a credible and proven vaccine, then we'll go forward with a production arrangement? Well, Canada and other countries, so to be fair, it's not just Canada, but the countries that can afford it are signing deals with multiple companies. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that because nobody knows whose vaccine is actually going to be successful in the long run. Yep. Um, But you have to give the companies the incentive to continue doing their research. If the company is going to be investing um, large amounts of money in developing a vaccine, which ultimately proves unsuccessful, then they may just stop um, early on because they're not guaranteed that they're going to make any money back. So, What Canada and, as I said, other countries are doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to sign a contract with you for 10 million doses of the vaccine, and we're going to pay you whatever, $200 million. Um, 
whether or not your vaccine actually proves to be successful. Right. So that's the kind of arrangement that gives the company the incentive to carry on. And uh, this one didn't work out. Well, then uh, uh, toss it in the can. We'll go back and do it again. That's the kind of, uh, of uh, I suppose, economic incentive they need. That's right. And it all, but it also guarantees that Canada isn't putting all its eggs in one basket. Sure. So we've signed contracts with five or six companies Um not all of those vaccines are probably going to be successful, but a few of them will be. Um, they may also be um, some vaccines may be better for old people. Some vaccines may be better for people with other um, with other underlying medical problems. So we'll have a range of vaccines um, hopefully available to us. Yeah. Dr. Lexon, I'm almost out of time. And as always, I'm very grateful for yours. Back to the timeline. And I know I'm, I'm asking you to speculate, but there are, uh, there, there's enough going on that you may have a feel at least for, for a timeline. Uh, uh, folks are talking about a vaccine, an effective vaccine available for mass distribution by approximately a year from now. Is that a reasonable timeline? Um, I'm not an expert. I think it probably is, but, um, the, it depends on, um, a number of things. So it depends on what the production process is actually like. Vaccines, um, are not simple things to make. Um, you can't produce hundreds of millions, well, or billions of doses of vaccine, um, in short periods of time. And the other thing we have to remember is that um, we only get we're only going to have um, success in controlling COVID-19 if we can vaccine vaccinate everybody across the globe, yep. which means that if there are um, a couple of hundred million doses of the vaccine, they should not just go to the rich countries. They need to be distributed in places like India, Brazil, Africa, um, where the Africa, where the um, the pandemic is running wild. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lexon, uh, lots to think about here. So we're always grateful to have an opportunity to speak to you. You'll be pleased that I've, I've done what I can. I had a flu shot yesterday. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, at least joining the, the ranks of those who are doing what we can in the absence of anything else. Great to speak to you again, sir. We'll do this again. Thanks very much, Sterling. It's been a pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure. Dr. Joel Lection joining us from the University Health Network in Toronto, where he is a, an associate professor of family and community medicine, also at the University of Toronto. And it's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program, too, because he has news, A, of a contest, and B, the winner of said contest. A, a pleasure, indeed, to welcome Flavio Volpe to the program. Mr. Volpe is president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturing Manufacturers Association of Canada, the sponsors of the contest, which is designed, by the way, to ultimately produce Canada's first zero emission vehicle. Mr. Volpe, Flavio, good morning and welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, sir. It's good to have you with us. Tell us first, if you will, uh, take a moment or two and tell us a little bit uh, first about the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, an organization that's been around in Canada since the 1950s. That's right. We represent uh, 400 companies that make uh, parts, uh, all the parts that go in your brand new cars uh, for that original assembly. Uh, Ship about $35 billion uh, billion worth of parts 
a year and employ 100,000 people across the country. Do do you make automotive parts for uh, manufacturers outside of Canada, Mr. Volpe, or is, uh, or, uh, is all of your work consumed domestically? 53% of what we ship uh, goes to those domestic assembly plants, uh, all of them in Ontario now, but they used to be in, uh, in eastern Canada as well as... Uh, Quebec. And then the other 48% gets exported, mostly to the U.S. and Mexico, but also around the world. Interesting stuff. Well, if one of those Ontario plants we saw a year or so ago in Oshawa, General Motors, uh, shut down uh, part of its production facility in Oshawa. Since that closure, there has been a re-announcement of uh, some degree of expectations of a new electric vehicle assembly line uh, to be put by General Motors with investor investment from the government of Canada and other sources. And now, in recent times, as in the last couple of weeks, Mr. Volpe, we've received the same news from Fiat Chrysler in Windsor, where we understand one of their vehicle uh, production lines will be converted to electric vehicles in the uh, months and years ahead. Can you confirm that this morning? Sure. Look, it's a very exciting time uh, in uh, this part of the country to be in the auto business. You know, we got the new NAFTA, and it's got new rules in it that require, for the first time ever, components in uh, batteries and electric vehicle or other zero-emission vehicle setups uh, to be included in the original assembly. So Ford announced last week that it was going to make battery electric vehicles in Oakville, Ontario, uh-huh. just uh, just outside the city of Toronto, and uh, it was a $2 billion investment. And then uh, two days ago, Fiat Chrysler said, you know what, we're going to do the same thing in Windsor, where they make uh, a minivan for uh, world production. It, um, it's quite a shift, and uh, it's exciting, and I, but I think it's also exciting for places like Vancouver, because uh, what we're talking about is zero-emission vehicles, whether they're battery or, or hydrogen fuel cell, mm-hmm. is really the question of the next 20 years. And I think that, uh, you know, the project you're talking about, our project, where we're going to build the first all Canadian designed, engineered, uh, supplied uh, uh, zero emissions vehicle may very well end up being a fuel cell vehicle, uh, utilizing some of that incredible technology that was pioneered by Ballard. Ballard, right here in, in Vancouver. Vancouver. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So, a uh, project. Three decades ago. This is called Project Arrow, for the benefit of those who are unfamiliar. This is all brand new stuff, too, Flavio. This is so Project Arrow is the name given to this design contest that your organization, the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, has sponsored for the past while. Who was invited to participate in the contest? Well, let me expand that for you. It's beyond the contest. We're going to build the car. And maybe the car will go into series production. And the first step in that was announcing that we opened up a design contest to be judged by global uh, automaker uh, heads of design. And uh, we restricted the, the submissions from Canadian university and college students. Um, sure, they all got help from their schools. And, and I'm glad we've got incredible um, faculty across this country, but you know we we you know we received designs. One of the finalists of the twenty five was uh, a fantastic design by a couple of students from uh, the uh, Wilson School of Design in Richmond, BC. Okay, and um, and uh, the final the final winners, uh, you know, three finalists were that project, uh, one from Humber College in Toronto, and then Carleton University School of Industrial Design in uh, 
in Ottawa. They ultimately won. But we've committed to doing two things in the next phase. We're going to engineer the actual vehicle and build it out uh, in partnership with Ontario Tech University in Oshawa, Ontario. But those three finalists, including the one from Richmond, will be built out in the VR cave, the virtual reality cave at the Windsor-Essex Economic Development Commission. And we will uh, make that, uh, we'll launch it for all Canadians to see the incredible design um, skills and ethic of students across this country. Indeed. Now, the difference, though, the big difference is, I, as I understand it, Mr. Volpe, and you can help me with this, because we are familiar to a degree with design contests targeting Canadian universities. We've seen in, in previous years uh, zero-emission vehicles, solar-powered vehicles, uh, single-occupant uh, vehicles of varying descriptions uh, and, and ability. Uh, so, But this is not that kind of contest in the sense that it's an actual vehicle that we're going to build out that will take its place on the streets of the country rather than those um, concept uh, vehicles that have been that, that have preceded this point in design contests absolutely right the design contest is just one phase of four here look uh, what our organization's been doing for six years now is taking already built vehicles uh built in Ontario, uh, Toyotas, Lexuses, uh, Chryslers. And we've been, um, we've been featuring new automotive tech on those vehicles. You know, these, these hundreds of, uh, of uh, suppliers that we have here, whatever new automotive tech they have, we bring them to the Consumer Electronics Show in, in Las Vegas. Uh, we take them on Palo Alto tours, and we've taken them across both oceans. What we decided last year, after being challenged by the Prime Minister to imagine a zero-emission future for our industry is... Right. I said, we'll build the whole car, stem to stern, and we will design it in Canada, we'll engineer it in Canada, every component will come from Canadian companies. And, and um, you know, we've got an incredible 100-year head start on this. You know, Canadian companies have been making every single part of every single conceivable type of vehicle um, in uh, Fords and GMs and Toyotas and Hondas and, and, uh, and uh, Chryslers for 110 years. Right. This vehicle... This vehicle is going to serve as a business card for automotive technology across this country as we build it and take it to auto shows in 2022. And, um, and uh, you know, the Premier of Ontario uh, so far has challenged us to consider how to turn this one vehicle into, um, a, um, into a vehicle company, right. whether that's us or, or we inspire somebody else to take it across the line. Um, that's the aim here. Fantastic stuff. Wonderful energy, Flavio. Just really wonderful energy and all Canadian energy as well. Our guest uh, joining us from Toronto and the Automotive Manufacturer Parts Manufacturers Association is Flavio Bolpe, the president of the association, here to describe Project Arrow, which is going to be Canada's first zero emissions vehicle. And Flavio, in the design phase, when you uh, made the criteria available to all of those contenders, Contestants, uh, this was not going to be some kind of, uh, as I, we talked about earlier, some of the uh, designs that we've seen from engineering schools in the past with solar-powered vehicles and super lightweight uh, uh, cars with bicycle tires and that sorts of thing. You you wanted a real car and suggested that in the design concept phase that you, they, they look at the SUV. This is going to be something, a vehicle you could take the kids to hockey in, a practical vehicle. That's right. Well, we said to people, we challenged them, we said, we're going to build this to Canadian motor vehicle safety standards, that your design, should you win, 
could be part of a design of a production vehicle. And in part, uh, we did that because I had 93 uh, supplier companies who volunteered to be part of it. And they said, look, we're willing to carry the cost of our components and the integration on this vehicle so that we can feature it at auto shows around the world. We're not interested in a science experiment. We're interested right. in something that may lead to some business. And if you look at Project Aero.ca and you look at the final design, somebody described it to me as Land Rover meets Toyota meets Canada. It is uh, absolutely, in my mind, a beautiful uh, CUV. It seats a family of four. It could have a five-seat configuration. And, and uh, if one of your kids happens to be a hockey goalie, there's plenty of space or his or her equipment in the trunk. Absolutely. And and it really is kind of a snazzy-looking car and very much in line with the popular mid-size SUVs that are just dominating uh, the marketplace today in Canada. And that's where you were going. You were going for a popular-looking vehicle in addition to being a practical zero-emission vehicle, right? That's right. Look, uh, you know, my family came from Italy. Uh, it would have been a dream to build a two-seat uh, sports car, but... There's no business in that. The uh-huh. fastest growing segment in Canada and the U.S. is the mid-sized CUV. And we also challenged everybody to say, look, this is an all-Canadian effort. I want this car to be able to roll. Uh, I want this car to be able to be used on a, on a trip in the middle of winter from Calgary to Edmonton. Right. And, um, and so, um, you know, I wish I could show everybody. I guess maybe at some point we will show everybody the uh, the nine long-listed uh, finalists. Uh, every single one of those look like uh, something that uh, I would uh, I would certainly drive by. Okay, and you've already mentioned the address, and, and, and it's a good one to, to check out. For, and it's really kind of fun, too. ProjectArrow.ca, uh, and that's the, the design car. You'll have a look at, uh, at, it's in a black and white picture at this point, but you get an idea of what they're going for here. Now, Flavio, there are four phases to this Project Arrow. Phase four takes place approximately two years from now with the concept car release and world tour. You've talked about taking this all Canadian product, every every inch of this product, all Canadian, to the world in two years. How are you going to get it built between now and then? Look, um, if this was a startup uh, and the component suppliers were new to the business, uh, that would be the, the million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. The reality is every single one of the partner companies makes uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of those parts every year. Uh-huh. And... Uh, we also have a partnership with a tooling and, and a machining group that after we build out the model in the virtual case and we work out the specs, if we've got one us, um, we will build those molds and uh, 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 make those tools uh, over the course of the next few months. It's not a, you know, the, the companies that have volunteered probably do about $80 billion of business a year around the world. Mm-hmm. And so, we have the wherewithal to do it, and our partners at Ontario Technical University have one of the world's most advanced um, uh, uh, multi-climate wind tunnel testing plates. And because of that, they partner with a Canadian company called Multimatic and Magna to manufacture vehicles, complete manufacture vehicles like the Ford GT supercar or Aston Martin vehicles. And so it's doable, it's aggressive, and it's doable, but you know, uh, in consultation with the industry that we represent. We thought the launch in January of 2020 to the completion in um, uh, somewhere in the third or fourth quarter of 2022 was reasonable. 
Interesting. So when would you expect to have the, uh, and of course, uh, completion by uh, 2022, the end of phase four, how many vehicles would you have ready to show the world by at, at that point, Flavio? One uh, superbly designed, multi-tested, uh, ready to go, or do you plan to have more than one model available at uh, the end of phase four? Well, what we're doing is we're aiming to build the one. Okay. The cost to build the first one. Right. The cost to build the first one is in the millions. Uh, but I, I'll say that um, it may have two variants. We may be able to turn around and do one as battery electric and do the other as, um, as uh, hydrogen fuel cell. Okay. Um, because I really do think between what we have in D.C. and what we have in Quebec on uh, batteries, uh, I'd love to be able to feature both. Ah, so it's still a toss-up then. Uh, ultimately, it's it's very interesting stuff because here we are yeah, on yeah. the on the verge of being ready to build one or the other, and you're yeah. st- we're still not yeah. sure which 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 technology is going to win. Do you know in the end, ninety five percent of the vehicles the same, and whether you're fuel cell or whether you have batteries, it's the same e gear and motor. Right. And um, I, you know, because we're going to take this out to the world, I would be remiss if we went out to the world and said oh, well, Canada is a, is a leader in batteries and then leave out the fact that we're a global leader in fuel cells and vice versa. So we're in the engineering phase now. We're looking at all options, including the ability to, at least on the concept or on the, on the first prototype, to be able to interchange the systems. And that's so clever. I mean, it really is smart because yeah. the, it, because we don't have a definitive, that's the last call, the, the other technology is a loser, we don't want to talk about it again. That's simply not the case. So in order to accommodate yeah. that reality, why not have a vehicle that you can display either hydrogen fuel or battery powered, uh, and then you've got, uh, you've got it all covered? That's right. And uh, what sort of reception, by the way, are you receiving from people who ultimately might be your customers? What kind of curiosity level is out there for this? You know, I think we struck a chord uh, with the pan-Canadian tone of this, but also with the name. We we wanted to name the project uh, after that incredible generation that preceded us, uh, two generations ago that preceded us that built the the world's most advanced uh, uh, jet fighter. Right. And uh, yes, it met an an ignoble end. But what that generation did uh, to be able to stretch the Canadian imagination and challenge Canadian technology innovation was extraordinary. Uh, You know, the the project, so the original Aero died, but but the chief engineers on that and designers on that went on to the Mercury program and the Apollo program. Yes. And Canadians put Americans on the moon. And so uh, we said, if we can give a spiritual nod uh, to, that, to that generation that has inspired, you know, 50, 60 years of Canadian innovation, uh, we were going to do it. And I'll tell you the response. Look, somebody found, quite coincidentally, test models of, of the original Arrow. In Lake Ontario. That's right. Just week. that's right. Just I was just going to say, Flavio. Here you go with Project Arrow. You're bringing it to the attention of the nation days after parts of the original Arrow were discovered at the bottom of Lake Ontario. Talk about connecting the dots in a timely fashion. We wish you considerable success with this, Mr. Volpe. We'll check back with you as things go forward. And thanks very much for being with us this morning. Please, uh, please do. I miss Vancouver. I hope when uh, this whole uh, pandemic and. I'll be back out there. Excellent. We'll look forward to a face-to-face down the road. Flavio Volpe, President, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. The car is projectarrow.ca. Check it out. This is exciting stuff.
Here's a headline that caught our attention. Impossible to miss this one. More Canadians are diagnosed with age-related macular degeneration than those with breast cancer, prostate cancer, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's combined, say the, uh, the eye doctors of Canada. Under the headline, Canadians aren't taking eye care seriously, and they've just released a new study to talk about it. Here to back all of this up and tell us more is Dr. Colin Mann. Joining us from Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, Dr. Mann is the president of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society. Dr. Mann, good morning and thanks for joining us, sir. Good morning, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, COVID-19 has scared the bejeepers out of millions of Canadians, Doc, to the point where many of us are, well, we call it postponing, uh, but really we're ignoring a lot of our personal health issues out of a, well, there's a two-part thing to this. A, in the early phases, we didn't want to crowd doctors' offices with people who might be there for far more serious reasons. And two, we're still terrified of catching COVID-19 and we'd rather just not go out. Uh, We We've, we've got past part one pretty successfully. Doctors' offices had to close too. Now you're reopened with unbelievable safety protocols in place. People should feel comfortable about going back. And yet, Dr. Mann, we're not. What's the story? Well, it's a very good point, Sterling. It certainly can be quite intimidating or scary. Uh, first, to uh, even go to a doctor's office, especially if you think there might be a problem or something wrong. And then with COVID overlaid on that. But as you've pointed out, uh, it's really important to know that uh, all the ophthalmologists in Canada are taking these uh, precautions and it's uh, in place so that it is a safe place to go. It's also really important to note that uh, a lot of Canadians uh, are affected by eye disease, Mm -hmm. perhaps more than we realize. Uh, One in six Canadians are actually uh, affected by one of the, the main four or the big four eye diseases. And so it's really crucial that we don't put off these uh, examinations and checks or treatment uh, as may be needed. Can I ask a silly civilian question? I I stated uh, quite confidently that more Canadians are diagnosed with age-related macular degeneration than those with breast cancer, prostate cancer, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's combined. What is age-related macular degeneration, Dr. Mann? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a really uh, startling statistic, but uh, it's, it is correct. It's an eye-popper, no pun intended. It is. <laughs> uh, macular degeneration is actually a disease of the retina, which is the light-sensitive part at the back of the eye. Okay. And as the name implies with age-related, it's more common as we get older, but can affect people even in their 40s or 50s, uh, and certainly becomes more common as people get older. Uh, It can affect the center part of the retina, the part we use for the detail vision right in the center. And that's why it can be such a a concern and in some cases a debilitating disease. So the big four are obviously age-related macular degeneration plus cataracts, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. Those are the four major, major eye issues with Canadians? They are um, what uh, we would term the the major four. Um, The macular degeneration we've talked about is affecting the retina. And diabetic retinopathy is just a big uh, fancy word that means that the blood vessels in the same retina can be affected in patients who have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Glaucoma is a condition where the nerve that carries the vision from the eye back to the brain uh, can become damaged over time. And cataract is probably familiar to many people, but unlike uh, some people feel or think that it's a skin or something that grows over the eye, 
It's actually the natural lens inside the eye, which goes from being nice and clear when we're a youngster to being more cloudy or hazy as we get older. Interesting. A lot of us, you know, we look uh, and we see these deterior. We can feel these deteriorations in our vision, and so we go to the supermarket and we find readers, and they they kind of improve things a little bit. And for I guess some of us, that that may take care of biz. But is there a segment of the population, Doctor Man, when it comes specifically to eye issues, that is more at risk than any other? There certainly is. And uh, even for people who feel they're doing fine and have no problems, it's really important to have a routine eye exam periodically. And the recommendations for that frequency get more uh, frequent as we get older. Okay. Because some of the conditions become more common as we get older, but particularly conditions like glaucoma, which is completely painless. You can have it and not even know it. Mm-hmm. So even if you feel that you're doing well, having a routine eye exam to look for those Uh, is important. Some of the the risk factors that you asked about, uh, if you're a smoker, you're at higher risk for some of these conditions. If you have diabetes, obviously, over 40 is a risk factor. Uh, Past eye injuries are a risk factor. And one of the things we haven't talked about is risks to vision from injuries. And that's the other thing that is quite common. And so if you're not wearing proper eye protection, or you haven't been someone who wore sunglasses on a regular basis to block ultraviolet light over a lifetime, Mm. you're also at a higher risk for this. In order to bring attention to this, the Canadian Ophthalmological Society has set up a new website, which is seethepossibilities.ca. Oh, okay. People can go to that website, and they can take a short uh, uh, assessment of their risk factors. And in fact, uh, for for two more days, if they do that, they can enter a draw for a, a gift certificate for eyewear from a major Canadian retailer. Uh, there's also a couple of uh, vision tests that can highlight if they're having uh, symptoms. And so, at that website, uh, you can get some uh, people can get uh, educated about the risk factors and about some uh, specific information on those diseases. Yeah, eye care during the COVID-19 pandemic, history of eye care innovation, that sort of thing. It's a great website too, uh, Dr. Mann. Wanted to ask you very quickly, sir, about contact lens wearers who may not be going to their eye uh, doctors regularly. Are they at any greater risk than people who just wear regular glasses? Yes, there's certainly a, a unique set of risks that goes with contact lens wear. Of course, if you Uh, do things properly, then the risks are quite low. But certainly uh, it's important to be checked regularly for fit for those contacts. Right. Because if your eye shape has changed and they're not fitting properly, or if you're wearing them longer than your eye is able to tolerate, uh, you can be at risk for specific problems with the cornea, the the clear layer over the front of the eye. Mm -hmm. How, How regularly should any person have his or her eyes checked? So it varies with age. In the age group from 19 to 40, where some of these conditions are less common, uh, about every 10 years, uh, every five years from 41 to 55, every three years from 56 to 65, and every two years over the age of 65. But on top of that, that would just be for routine assessments. But on top of that, it's really important if you have any symptoms of eye disease, and that could be a decrease in vision not explained by a change in glasses or distortion in your vision Mm -hmm. or black spots or areas missing in your vision. If you have any of those symptoms, it's really important to get your eyes examined. And don't be afraid. Make an appointment, right, Dr. Mann? Absolutely. So uh, precautions are all in place that you can do that safely. 
And uh, the good news is that vision loss can be treated or even prevented in 75% of cases with these serious eye diseases that we've talked about. And the website, early detection. Yeah, Dr. Mann recommends see the possibilities, one word, see the possibilities.ca for lots more eye information. Dr. Colin Mann in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, thank you for this. Great to speak to you. We appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Sterling. Thanks very much. A pleasure. There you go. Eye exams, don't be afraid. Get it done. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.